Good morning, Westgate. Won't you please stand and worship with us?
My name is Rob Zerman, lead pastor here at the church, and uh, I'm just super excited that you've chosen to be here and worship with us today. Uh, we've got a lot of great things uh, that are going on around the church, and so before I dive into those, uh, just a couple of quick things. One, if you are a guest, thank you so much for worshiping with us. I hope today is just a special day for you as you uh, connect with the Lord, but hopefully with other people uh, here at Westgate. Uh, we've got a really awesome community of people that worship here, and we would love nothing more than for you to be able to get connected connected into the life of the church. And so uh, as you think about that, one of the first steps to get connected is to take a moment and fill out a connection card. Uh, you'll see those connection cards in the pew in front of you. If you would take a moment to uh, fill that out. Also, if you've got our church app, you can do that as well. Uh, you can fill that out actually online, makes it a little bit easier, but we'd encourage you to take a moment and fill out that connection card. And if you are a guest, we would love for you to take it uh, at the close of the service out into the main entrance to our guest center that is just right outside those doors. And we have some people there that can answer questions you might have about the church and how to get connected. But even more, as you hand them that card, they will exchange it for a small gift to say thank you for being here. And so uh, please be sure to do that at the close of our service this morning. Uh, regular attenders, as always, uh, please uh, feel free to use that connection card to fill out any prayer requests that you might have. Our staff loves to be able to pray for you uh, in, in the course of life and the many things that are going on. And so uh, please be sure to fill that out and you can turn that in uh, with the offering later in the service. Uh, if you grabbed your uh your sermon notes on the way in this morning. There's uh, one really important thing on the inside I want to draw your attention to, which is uh, our adult classes pamphlet. We're going to be beginning our new classes for the spring, uh, and this pamphlet is chock full of information about the different offerings that are there. I want to encourage you that um, not only is it a great way just to continue growing in your relationship with the Lord, but especially if you're new, this is a really great first step to getting connected with other people and getting to know them. Short-term classes with the opportunity to build relationships. And so uh, please be sure to check those out and we encourage you to get involved. Uh, the other thing and another great way to get connected here is with our women's retreat uh, if that is coming up here very shortly. I believe it is happening on uh, Saturday, March 11th and uh, the women's retreat, Let's Be Real, uh, is gonna be a great day of spending time together uh, talking about real life things and digging into God's word together. Uh, there's gonna be a catered meal that'll happen and a lot of different special treats. If you are a woman and want to just be in community with others and growing deeper in Christ, I can't encourage you enough to join us and be a part of that. The most important piece of information though for uh, this, uh, this conference is that you, uh, the deadline to register is this coming Tuesday, uh, the 2nd, March 2nd. And so uh, we need to do that in order to make sure that we have uh, our numbers to the caterer in time for the meal. So if you haven't registered yet and would like to, you can do so by going to our website. You can jump on our app. You can stop by the table in the cafe and grab more information about the, the conference this morning. But I encourage you to be thinking about who are the people that God has placed in your life as well in your circles that you can invite uh, to be a part of this as well. Uh, one other great thing that we have going on is uh, our spring serve. And as you know that within our deep roots, broad reach, five-year vision initiative as a church, one of our primary goals is that over a five-year period that we would see 50% uh, of our church active, or I'm sorry, 50%, 80% of our church actively serving and using their gifts in some different way. And one of the ways that you can begin doing that is by jumping in and being involved with our Spring Serve. One of our elders is here this morning, Mark Fertig. Uh, would you welcome Mark as he comes? Mark is... Uh 
Mark is going to share a little bit with us about this. Mark also uh, is, uh, works with Crew as a regional director, and we are super excited for him to share. So share with us. Thanks. Good morning, Westgate. Good to be with you this morning. Um, talking about Spring Serve, I think um, one of the things I recognize is that for many of us, we're in different places as to how we engage in ministry. And so I want to kind of share a little bit. You know, working with Crew a number of weeks ago, we had a, a, at Michigan State, there was a shooting. And our staff and students there, uh, the whole campus really was traumatized by this event. And so what we found in the course of kind of responding to this, there were a lot of resources that were available from the school and from the university. Uh, but our staff, even though they were kind of full-time ministers, you know, professionally trained in sharing the gospel and all of these things, the greatest thing that they could offer to all of these students who were kind of traumatized, even walking through their own trauma, was just being available. Uh, stories after stories where they would open up their homes and allow students just to come and do homework, just to get a meal, just to be, uh, play with their dog. You know, some of our staff took their dogs on campus. And the response from students in this broken and kind of state of, of trauma was just overwhelming openness to talk about things, their lives, spiritual things. And so I say that because I think for us as a church, there is a significant opportunity to reach broken and hurting people in our community. Um, and there's a number of ways that you can do that. And really all that we're asking you to do is to show up, to open your homes, to meet an international student or, or cook a meal for a college student, an athlete. Um, most of these things are, are things that we would do to ask and, and challenge one another to take a step of faith. If we're going to be the church that God is calling us to be in the next five years, uh, reaching our community, it's going to take faith. And that, that faith has to start somewhere. For some of us, that might just be showing up and fixing a bike uh, with TNC uh, this summer. For others, it might be uh, with your life group doing some activity uh, where you're connecting with a local elementary school. Uh, we've got a great ministry that started with a local elementary school here. Uh, where we're serving the staff there and, and praying for them and connecting with them. So if you can think of an activity or something that will connect with people, there's likely some opportunity to serve our, with our church in reaching our community around us. So in the back, uh, out by the cafe, there's an informational table. There's someone be manning that just to kind of answer some of your questions. But there's a couple of uh, items I'd draw your attention to. One is this card uh, just kind of... Uh, point you to our website and some of the different opportunities that are there. And then the other is just this uh, kind of a printout of, of the variety of things that you could do this summer, or sorry, this spring. Um, a couple of those things, again, connecting with a local elementary school, the neighborhood church, uh, and then just reaching your neighbors together. And so there's some promptings there. So I would really challenge you and ask you, what is your next step of faith? Uh, to help us become the church God is calling us to be, where we're serving with one another, alongside one another, to reach lost and hurting people. Uh, there are three things that will pr typically come out of something like this. Is one is your own faith will grow. Uh, you're, you're trusting the Lord for, for growth in your own life, and you're connecting with other people. I think, two is just the sense of an awe of God's glory and seeing him work and transform lives. And then three is connecting with lost people. That You get this opportunity to talk to people who are hurting and who don't know Jesus. We're hurting too, right? We all have our things, but we have the hope of Jesus that pulls us through that. So we get to offer that to people in our community. So I would invite you now, um, we're going to have a time of just welcoming one another and getting to know one another um, to be the body of Christ. And so stand up, meet someone around you, um, shake a hand, uh, give a hug, I guess. Maybe no brotherly kisses. I don't know if you've got that kind of relationship, but take a couple minutes for that.
know we could talk to each other forever because it's one thing we're really good at here. But will you guys and gals join me in prayer as we continue worshiping together? Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us here. We thank you for this opportunity we have to worship you. So God, I ask that you would continue to prepare our hearts and our minds. Prepare us for your word. Prepare us for worship, Father, as we continue to do that this morning. God, may we not take this for granted. God, may we remember that these songs are weapons. God, are weapons against the enemy, Father. They are declarations that you have defeated death, that you have conquered darkness you are mighty you are the light of the world God we thank you that we get to do this together we thank you for this opportunity to worship you God may we we offer these songs up these words up to you as an offering Lord it's in your name we pray and all God's people said amen Yeah. 
Father, can I get an amen if you believe that? Amen. Amen. Just want to sing this again just a little bit longer. Want us to declare this over the enemy. Let him hear you. Let your enemies hear you. Let whatever's, let whatever's afflicting you, let whatever's hurting you, let that hear you. Sing a little louder. Sing a little louder. Yes, we're going to sing a little louder. 
Father God, thank you for all that you are. Thank you for being so, so good. We sometimes forget that. We ask that you would be with us today and especially as we wrap our minds around this message coming from you, um, that you would just fill our hearts and our minds with everything that you have to say today and all of our offerings, whether it be in song or words or our lives and our giving, we, we ask that it would bring you all the glory in your name, amen. Please take a moment to pass your offerings if you feel so led. Thank you. How are you? Good, good. So good to be able to worship uh, together this morning. Uh, before we jump into the message, I want to just take a moment uh, to talk about uh, just an aspect of our five-year vision as a church. As I mentioned earlier, deep roots and broad reach uh, is uh, what we're focusing on, growing deeper in Christ together, uh, but also then having an impact of having a broad reach uh, into our communities and the uh, personal uh, circles that God has given us, uh, doing personal neighboring, reaching out to the people that God brings into our personal circles. But then even more so, uh, one of the aspects that we've been talking about is how God desires for us as a church collectively to reach the community that our building is actually centered in. And so uh, we talk about reaching the corporate community that surrounds us, uh, people in the one to two mile radius. And uh, we have set a goal uh, over these next five years of wanting to reach 250 new households directly in the community that surrounds us, either from reaching our neighbors of people that are, you know, in our lives that God brings up, uh, across our path, uh, but also uh, that, that are in the immediate community around the church. And one of the ways that we desire to do that is to look for opportunities to meet felt needs within the community where we as a church can tangibly show people uh, that we love them and also where we can share the love of Christ with them. And so uh, we have a number of awesome ways that we're going to be doing that. And I want to share with you one specific way that's going to be starting uh, very soon that I'm excited about. And to do that, I'm going to invite Maggie George to come in and join me on the platform. Would you welcome Maggie as she comes this morning? Uh, Maggie, uh, again, uh, Another crew member. It's like a Toledo crew. It's super crew fun. Is showing up I know. I love it. Today. I said in first service that the George family really loves doing ministry alongside the Fertig family. So this is fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, Maggie, uh, as we said in the first service, uh, it was about last year in January when we did our mental health series as we we're exiting the pandemic uh, that you and I began a conversation about recognizing that not only is mental health a real issue uh, for people within our church, but especially in our community, especially 
especially exiting the season that we have all walked through. And uh, one aspect of that that you have been passionate about is in the area of grief. And uh, the ministry that we're looking at beginning uh, here at Westgate very shortly is called Grief Share. And you'll see a slide up on the screen, hopefully in just a minute, uh, that can give you some information about that. But Maggie, would you maybe share with us just a little bit about your own journey with grief and then also, um, you know, just why this ministry is so important to you. Yeah, thanks for that opportunity to do so. Um, A few years ago, I walked through a season of loss that I can really only describe with the word brutal. In about eight weeks time, I lost um, three uncles who were really special to me. My mom died. And then a week after my mom's passing, I experienced a miscarriage. So if you're doing the math, that's five losses in about eight weeks' time. And I was pretty quickly able to get connected to an amazing counselor and to a grief share group. And in that moment, it really felt like my world was spiraling out of control and I was left to free fall. Um, But grief share became this parachute that kind of opened over me and gave me a safe landing. Pretty immediately, I was immersed in a group of people who were also experiencing some type of loss. Grief Share is there specifically to help you process the grief related to um, the loss of someone that you, you love. And everybody in the group was doing the same thing, so it became a safe place for me to share honestly about what that experience was like. And I knew it was safe from those um, well-meaning, but sometimes very unhelpful or abrasive cliches that we like to give each other when we're hurting. Everyone knew that that was not going to be helpful in that moment. The content in Grief Share is biblically based, and so it really helped me to tether my hope to something that was firm and secure. It helped me tether my hope to Jesus. And it's incredibly practical, too. In the videos that we watch every week, Um, There are just normal people who are offering, like, when I was walking through my season of loss, this is something that helped me. Maybe it'll help you too. And there's also mental health professionals that are part of these videos as well, and they break down what is going on in your, in your brain and in your body that makes you feel like you're going crazy, Um, but they assure you that you're not going crazy, you're just hurting, and they too will offer very small so small, manageable, doable things to try as you are um, on your grief journey. And so I really experienced the benefit of Grief Share again when um, two years later, I got a phone call from my sister letting me know that my dad had died unexpectedly. And I felt that spiraling again and that free falling again, but I was able to grab my Grief Share book, jump back into my group, and um, walk this new chapter of grief in community with other people and in step with the Lord. Yeah. And you know, uh, what's awesome is you share about your own experience is uh, that really this ministry is one that we want to be for our church, but also we recognize there are so many people in our community that this would be such a benefit to people that you're connected with and in relationship with, but also people that we're not connected with. And we, uh, we did kind of a test run, if you will, uh, with a class around the holiday season is that is a very difficult time uh, for people that have lost a loved one. And uh, one of the things that Maggie was sharing with me is in the class that we hosted here at Westgate that over half of the people were not from our church. And this is the heart and passion that I've got is that we would be able to not only love people well in our community that that are in a time of, of grieving, 
but that we also would be able to help point them to the truth that Jesus is the answer. And so I'm excited about the opportunity for us to dive into this ministry. Maggie, would you share just uh, quickly with us, when are we starting and what are some ways that people can get connected if they're interested? Yeah, so we're starting um, next Tuesday, March 7th. And um, the class runs for 13 weeks. Please don't let that overwhelm you. We encourage just trying it for three weeks and then reevaluate. Um, you can get connected by uh, going to westgatechapel.org or the Westgate Chapel app. It's on the homepage of both. I'll also be standing out in the cafe area after the service with these little pamphlets that have some additional details. Um, and next week after the second service, we're going to have a little bit like of a kind of a preview meeting in the chapel following the service where you can come and ask questions and learn a little bit more. That's awesome. Would you thank Maggie for sharing with us this morning? <clears throat> well, if you've got your Bibles, can you pull them out with me? We're going to jump in together. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 20 again. Uh, and then also, if you want to flip to Ephesians chapter 4 and put your finger there, we'll, uh, we'll travel there uh, just a little bit later in the message this morning. But if you uh, have not been with us over the past many weeks, we're in the middle of a series entitled Guardrails, uh, where we have been going through the Ten Commandments together, seeking to really understand the purpose behind the Ten Commandments, not just as a list of things to do, but helping us to understand the very character and nature of who God is and how he desires us as individuals to be a reflection of his image to the world that surrounds us. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 16, again, taking a look uh, at a uh, commandment that at first glance could seem fairly easy, but there is a lot of depth to it, uh, I think, as we mill down into it together this morning. So Exodus 20, 16, you'll hear, see it here on the screen as well, says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, in a lot of churches and a lot of places in the Christian world, people will boil this commandment down to just simply, uh, thou shalt not lie. And it can have that application for sure. As we dive in a little bit deeper this morning, you'll see uh, that that is true. And as I was thinking about that this, uh, this past week, uh, I wanted to take a quick look and see, because I venture to guess that most of us at some point in our lives have lied. And I'm going to prove that to you this morning. I looked up uh, the top 10 lies that we tell on a regular basis. And so I want you to play a little game with me this morning. I'm going to read a few of these off. I want you to keep track of how many points you get based on how many of these lies that you've told. The goal, by the way, is not to count for your neighbor. It is to count for yourself, okay? So make sure you do that and don't, don't nudge each other. But here we go. The first one, I believe almost every person in the room is going to get a point immediately. You ready? The first lie, the big one, I have read and agreed to the above terms and conditions. Yes, you feel that deeply, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Ain't nobody reading all that small stuff, right? All right, anybody here ever read through the entire terms and conditions? You have a problem. Okay, sorry. I'm just, I'm just playing. I love you deeply. All right, next. Uh, another lie. Uh, when, when somebody asks you if you got an email and your response is, uh, it must have gone to my spam folder. Some people might be guilty of that. Uh, another one, when somebody asks you how you're doing and your response is, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine means one of two things I find. It either means leave me alone or give me attention. And you've got to figure out which it is. If I ever say it, I promise you it means leave me alone. Okay, so 
It means really don't ask. Uh, number four, uh, you know, if somebody comes and says, hey, do you know so-and-so? What's the lie we always say? Oh, that name sounds familiar. No, it doesn't. Okay. Okay. Uh, next one, number five. Uh, they say that one of the lies we always tell is this is the best gift I've ever received. Um, maybe some of you are guilty of that. Number six, do not hit the person next to you. Yes, honey, I was listening, right? Some of us might be guilty of that one. All right. Number seven, I promise I'll be there in five minutes. Uh, number eight, I'm sorry I was late. The traffic was horrible. Um, number nine, yes, honey, I love that dress. What? People are horrible, I'm telling you. Uh, last one that they had listed on this thing was uh, not necessarily a statement, but they said uh, one of the lies we often tell is when we put the crying, laughing emoji on a social media post, like who's really crying and laughing all at the same time, really, okay? So they've got all of these different lies that we tell. What does it tell us? It's very easy for us to fall into that trap. But here's the bottom line. Is that really what this commandment is? Is that the fullness of what it is? Thou shalt not, shall not bear false witness. What does it really mean? Because there's something much deeper for us to look at. The initial context, your first fill-in in your notes, the initial context of bearing false witness, uh, this commandment pictures a courtroom or a civil trial setting. Uh, in the Old Testament, this is the picture they would have had because in the ancient world, the most important thing you had in a courtroom was eyewitnesses to testify either for or against you. Now, in our courtrooms today, we have so much more than even witnesses that can either condemn a person or can, can vindicate them. Uh, you think about uh, what I talked about a few weeks ago, uh, the murders uh, that took place in Idaho of the four college students um, that were killed in the middle of the night and they at first couldn't find the person that did it. How did they find that person? There were so many different things at their disposal. Uh, if you think about how incredible it is, it's really CSI-like. Like literally, they went to video cameras of neighbors' houses that weren't pointed at the house, but they grabbed the audio from them and they could hear a dog barking, which told them what time something was happening. Then they found surveillance cameras all throughout the city knowing what that time was to look for a car that might possibly be kind of circling the area that they could find that. They used DNA testing. They used fingerprints. You know, we have so many things at our disposal in the world today to help figure out what truth is, but these things they didn't have in ancient culture. And so the burden of proof was always put on eyewitnesses. But you might ask, well, in in Israelite culture then, what if a witness lied? What if a witness got up in the stand and told a lie because they didn't like the person that was there and they wanted them to be condemned uh, un unjustly? How did they keep false witnesses from coming up and doing that? Uh, how would you keep a courtroom from devolving into he said, she said, he said, she said? Well, there were three different ways that they did this, and we see this within the law in the Old Testament. The first thing is this, is that uh, the Old Testament law tells us one witness was never enough. One witness wasn't enough. You know, today in our world, one person can go on to social media, they can make a salacious claim about a person, and it will go viral, and you'll have thousands upon thousands of people believing it as hard fact and truth. But back then, you, it couldn't just be one person. You had to have multiple people in Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6 says it this way. 
on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. But a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. So you had to have multiple people that would come forward. We see this carry over into the New Testament, even in how the church operated. In 1 Timothy 5.19, we see that it says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So having multiple witnesses was super important to getting to the bottom of the truth. But even more than that, the second thing that was important was that the person who was a witness had to be ready to literally throw the first stone against an individual. Today in our culture, you can make an accusation against somebody, you can start an entire fire around it, walk away and let the mob take over, and you don't have to be a part in it anymore. But back in that culture, if you were the person that was a witness, you would have to actually actively participate in the sentence of the guilty. One verse later in Deuteronomy 17, it says this, it says, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. It would take literally a very special kind of wicked, uh, an evil person to stoop down, to pick up a very large stone and use it to kill and crush another person knowing that they were lying. And so that was one of the things that they put in place is that if you were that person, that that would happen. But one other protection they had in place was this. And most importantly, is that you were liable to the punishment of the person you were accusing if you yourself lied. You know, it seems in our culture today that you can lie without any consequences. We watch our politicians, we watch people on TV, we see people in social media do it all the time. You can lie salaciously and there will be no consequences for you. But in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says this, the judges shall inquire diligently and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. In other words, you got to face death if you were the one that was caught lying about another person. Bearing false witness in a court setting was a huge deal during Israel's day. And that's why one of the reasons why we see this is put here in the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie about another person. But it begs us to ask the question then, and this is the next villain in your notes, does the principle of this law imply then that dishonesty in general, not just in court cases, is also forbidden? And the answer to that question is certainly yes. That the broad implications of thou shalt not bear false witness is not just meant to be in a court setting, but it also spreads out from there. As with the other commandments that we've looked at over the last many weeks, each of them often give an example, an extreme example of sinning, and yet there are other ways that they can be broken. Think about it in this way. Murder is just the most extreme way of breaking the sixth commandment. But Jesus tells us that our uncontrolled, unchecked anger is also a violation of this commandment. You think about adultery, adultery being the seventh commandment is one of the worst ways that you can break it. But Jesus says that if you lust after someone in your heart, you are just as guilty of breaking this commandment. And it's the tr same truth when we come to the ninth commandment. 
while the worst that you could do is to bear false witness, to actively lie in a court setting where someone's life could literally be snuffed out based upon your false accusations, the commandment also certainly covers all manner of falsehoods that we can participate in. And so what would this then include? The first thing that it would include is this, is all forms of lying about someone. Now, you would think that as we read the Bible, a book that is often referred to as the holy book, uh, you wouldn't find much lying in it. But the problem is, is, as you read through the Bible, you will find that it is full of stories who people with of pe- full of stories of people who struggled with lying and telling the truth from start to finish. We begin in the book of Genesis, and the first one that we see is Satan himself. That Satan, as the serpent in the Garden of Eden, comes to Eve and begins to tell her lies in order to get her to believe something that is not true about God. What does he say? It says here that in chapter 3 of Genesis, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He begins to sow seeds of doubt. And then he says, after she responds that they will die, he says, you will not die. Actually, if you eat from it, you will be like God. What was Satan doing? Attempting to get Eve and also Adam to believe that somehow, someway, God was holding out on them and that they could be like him and maybe even greater than him if they themselves would not listen. Satan is the first example that we have, and the Bible tells us that he is considered to be the father of lies, literally the one that sows this into our very fabric as fallen human beings. We see throughout the Old Testament that it continues. Jacob lied to his father in order to gain his favor and his birthright over his brother Esau. We see Laban lies to Jacob when he gives him Leah uh, as his wife over Rachel. Uh, One of the more common ones that we might remember is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, two people, a married couple that told just a little bit of a white lie and it ended in a really poor way. Um, The example of of Ananias and Sapphira is that they went uh, to the church and basically said, we have this property, we sold this property and we're giving all of the proceeds of this property to the church, knowing in their hearts and minds that they had held back a small little piece. Uh, you know, it'd be like one of you walking up to me saying, I am so tired of looking at this pink carpet and pews. Uh, I'm going to come and sell this property and give you all of the proceeds, Pastor Rob, in order for us to move forward, but knowing in your heart that you held it back. And if the story that I'm explaining to you followed suit with the Bible, you wouldn't get halfway out of the room before you just dropped dead. Why? The passage tells us that Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead because they were lying not only to uh, the church, but they were lying to the whole, literally to the Holy Spirit himself. We see all throughout scripture that not only is Satan the one that began it, but it is a seed that is sown in the very heart of sinful man to lie. And the truth is in our culture today, what we find is that it appears truth no longer matters. Anywhere you look, Even from people that we are supposed to respect the most, our leaders, our politicians, people that are leading the charge, they will do anything to lie in order to have gain for themselves. It doesn't matter how bad or how salacious. And because of lies that are told, not just by big leaders in our world and our country, but also by ourselves, we see that marriages are broken up and severely damaged at times by false rumors that reputations of honest and honorable people are damaged beyond repair. Friendships and families are broken apart. Jobs are lost, and the list could go on and on. 
But the Bible also, as we think about how this would apply, not only talks about all forms of lying, but if we dig a little bit deeper, it would then be talking about something called slander. Fill that in in your notes, slander. Slander is making a false statement in order to damage a person's reputation. Uh, These are things that we see happening constantly in our world and culture today. And theologian Walter Brueggemann uh, said it this way. I think he said it best. Politicians in our world today seek to destroy one another with their words at any cost. Once trusted news platforms outright lie based on their party affiliation. And in Christian living rooms, reputations are tarnished and destroyed over cups of coffee that are served in fine china and with dessert. These de facto courtrooms are conducted without due process of law. False accusations are easily made. Hearsay is allowed. Slander, perjury, and libelous comments are uttered without objection and no evidence and no defense. Slander is one of the ways in which in our world today has become very, very acceptable, but we can easily find ourselves participating within this commandment. Another way is by spreading false rumors. Now, as a pastor, I've become accustomed to understanding false rumors. Oftentimes, rumors about pastors get started. Sometimes they're theological. Sometimes they're just silly in nature. Uh, My favorite one of the most recent uh, past uh, that was told to me is that there was somebody in our community that was going around telling people that I was building a home in Las Vegas and I was going to move. Now, guys, can, can we be real for just a minute? Why in the world would I want to move to Las Vegas? Now, if you hear a rumor that says, Pastor Rob is building a house in Cancun, Cozumel, you know, the Grand Cayman, the Cayman Islands, uh, believe that one more than Las Vegas, okay? But I just want to tell you, not moving, definitely not building a house. I wish I had the money to do so, but I don't. So, but rumors get started all the time, very easily and at times very senselessly. Sometimes they get started by a person that is telling something that isn't true, but then often we participate by passing things along when we don't even know if they're true ourselves. You know, not only is bearing false witness about lying and saying things that are untrue about people, but it also includes when we spread that false information about others, not knowing whether or not it is true. And this really comes down to the last one, all forms of gossip all forms of gossip. You might look at me though and say, well, how is gossip a form of bearing false witness, Pastor Rob? And I would simply tell you this, because you might say, well, some of the gossip is true, so it's not really false. So, you know, does that really apply here? And here's what I would say. With all gossip, when we gossip, we are not just talking about one specific issue, but often what we are doing is literally trying to destroy the entire character of a person we oftentimes are trying to take the entire whole of a person and make them bad. And so when we look at all of these different ways that this could apply, and we think about what the Bible has to say about uh, not bearing false witness, 
It also then continues and says uh, not to bear false witness against your neighbor. And that leads us to a very simple question. Well, who then is my neighbor? What we most commonly think of when we think about a neighbor is the person next door. For me, I think of Scott and Jennifer. I think of Alex and Kara, our neighbors on the left and the right uh, where we live. Really awesome people. God has blessed Rochelle and I with some of the best neighbors in the world. I love them. And I would think to myself, if this is all it applied to, I just can't talk bad about my neighbor. I think that's pretty easy because they're pretty awesome people. However, the Bible's context for understanding of neighbor is much larger than that. You see, who is my neighbor? In context, your neighbor was any other human being that you might have dealings with. Anyone that would come into your life. In other words, it's not just the person who lives next door. Your neighbor is your family. Your neighbor is your classmate. Your neighbor is your coworker, your friends, your pastors, the person you just met during meet and greet. It's the parents on your kids' soccer, basketball, hockey, baseball, tennis teams, you name it, whoever you're sitting with that comes into your life. It's the person that you just happened to run into on the street. Your neighbor was anyone and everyone that God crossed into your path. That was your neighbor. It's the reason when we talk about neighboring at Westgate Chapel, like reaching your neighbor. We're not just talking about the people next door. We're talking about who are the people that God has brought into your circle of influence, whether that's a person that just walks in one day off the street or people that you are doing life with. That is the idea of what it meant when it said your neighbor, anyone that God brings into your life and into your circles. Now, when we think about this, What God is telling his people is do not bear false witness against anyone that might enter into your life. But what was the significance of this commandment for God's people? Why was it so important? Why is it so important for us? The first thing I want us to understand is this, is that this commandment was about far more than just God's people being nice to each other. It'd be very easy to read this back. All right, I need to be nicer. I need to not lie. I need to not gossip. I need to not, I just need to be nicer. But I want you to think about this morning the depth behind this. We see this all throughout the New Testament uh, as well, where the Bible talks about how, how, um, how destructive our tongues are and our speech can be. In the book of James in the New Testament, in James chapter 3, James says, consider how great a forest, when he's speaking about the tongue, consider how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now, this is something I have some experience with growing up in California. Uh, all the time, I saw very small fires cause the entire state to burn down. I mean, one of the more notorious ones that hit the national news, you might know, a few years ago, uh, there was a, a couple that went out and they wanted to do a gender reveal for their baby that was going to be born in a park. That park was actually really close to Rochelle's uh, parents' house. It was maybe a couple of blocks away. And uh, what they decided for their gender reveal was to shoot shoot off some pyrotechnics that would display the color uh, that would would tell them if, if the baby was a boy or a girl. And when they did it, there was some dry grass that was nearby that caught fire and literally ran and took acres upon acres and miles of mountainside uh, and completely burned it to the ground. It was an incredible disaster. This is the picture that I see James painting for us about how destructive our tongues can be. He says, consider how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
And he says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is itself set on fire by hell. Those are harsh words. Certainly, when we think about this commandment, the significance is not just about being nice to each other. What it reminds us is that our tongues can be used to completely destroy and tear people apart. Not only is it damaging to us personally and damaging to our relationship with the Lord, but we can literally destroy the lives of other people with our mouths. And the purpose for this commandment for God's people was to understand how one's own behavior would affect the health and well-being of the community as a whole. Remember that God is preparing his people to enter into the promised land, to live together in community with him as their king. And when they would find themselves in a dispute over land or property in the course of seeking a fair and just resolution, the parties involved or witnesses could intentionally distort the truth, perhaps for personal gain or social, and then social cohesion would be threatened. God was trying to prepare them for doing life together. But we need to understand, God wasn't just training them to be nice. He's specifically training them to be his people in Canaan. To reflect his character to the world that surrounded them. So that people would know the one true God. You see, this is the truth. Is that God wanted them to be order amid chaos. He wanted them to be holy people in an unholy world, a people who stood for truth and love so that the nations would come to know the one true God. Unpack that with me because I believe that this is the truth that God has for us in this commandment. Is it God's desire for us as his chosen people, those who he dearly loves, is that we would be order amid chaos. The world that we live in today is so chaotic. Turn on the news, flip on the social media or the computer, the TV, whatever it is. Literally every day we are bombarded with lies and messages about people that are meant to destroy and to tear them down. Have you, have you felt that searing, what I would just call yuck, when you look and read this stuff, like it goes against our very nature as followers of Jesus Christ, but it bombards us every single day. God has called us to not participate, but to be order amidst that chaos. Literally, the next line, to be holy in an unholy world, that we would be different, that we would be set apart. That's what holy means. That when the world looks at us, that we don't look like it. That we don't participate in the tearing down of people in the way that the world does. That where the world seeks to tear people down, God has called us as his people in all situations, no matter how we've been wronged, to build people up. That is what we've been called to. And in that, to be those who would stand for truth, and sometimes truth is hard, but to stand for truth in love. And that is where we often miss the point. 
is that we allow truth. We find somebody has hurt us, somebody has damaged us or hurt other people. And rather than figure out how to stand for truth in love, we go straight to the world's ways. We don't guard our tongues. And we allow them to not only destroy ourselves, but to destroy other people. What God calls us to is to be different, to be set apart. Why? So that the nations will know God. So that when this evil culture that we live in sees us, they see something different. But not just for the sake of seeing something different, but so that they will go, wow, that's attractive. That is something that I desperately want so that they will see God. And I ask you this question this morning. In what ways have you struggled personally with bearing false witness? As I mentioned before, we read these commandments and easy to have all of these different things. When we talk about gossip and we talk about slander and we talk about spreading false rumors or rumors in general, like when we participate in that, it's easy to think about people in our lives that have broken those. But what about you? What about me? In what ways have we purposely told lies about somebody to impinge their character in the eyes of others? In what ways have we slandered someone to other people because of the hurt that they have caused us? In what ways have we been a party to spreading rumors that are true or even not true, but are meant to destroy? In what ways have we participated in gossip that is meant to tear down the whole person, even though they may still truly love the Lord in spite of of the fact that they have hurt us? In what ways have we lacked in truth, but even more so, have we lacked in love? See, Paul addresses this very clearly in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Paul speaks to this very issue that we as God's church, you know, in the Old Testament, this was meant to unify God's people. It was meant for them to be a reflection of who he was to the world. And Paul tells us the very same thing about ourselves. And this is what he says, that our unity as followers of Jesus Christ is essential and that it is God's perfect design for our flourishing as his children. If you have your Bibles, look with with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in what the bond of peace. When I read this, there is no room for that chaos that we talked about. Paul begins by saying, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. What's Paul's situation? Paul is imprisoned as he is writing this letter to not only the church in Ephesus, but to the surrounding area. He's imprisoned, and there is no doubt that during this time and season that the church itself is encountering all sorts of persecution, all sorts of of an evil, sinful world that surrounds them that's trying to 
to, to cause uh, the believers to be formed more into the image of the world than into the image of Christ. Uh, the people are facing that. And no doubt, as they face many different forms of persecution, it would be so much easier to conform to the world than to Christ, wrestling with that pressure. And as Paul writes these words, he says, I urge you. Now, this word, I urge you in the Greek, is not just a mere suggestion. Literally, it is a very, very strong appeal. What Paul is doing is he is literally pleading with the people, begging them. I urge you, I plead with you. In the midst of this difficulty that you are facing, in this culture that is trying to suck you in, that does not honor God, I plead with you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does Paul mean by those words? Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling which you have been called. He calls us to remember who God is and what God desires for us. Literally what he's doing is what we have been talking about as we go throughout the Ten Commandments together. The Ten Commandments were written for a purpose of us understanding the very character of God, who he is, what he has done for us, that we might what? Be not a reflection of the world, but a reflection of him to the world, that we would literally bear his image. And when Paul says these words, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received, he's calling us to be a reflection of God, to be a reflection of Jesus, that who he is and what he has done for us, that out of our love for him, that we would be a reflection of him to the world. And what does that look like? He says, in all humility, in gentleness, in patience, bearing with one another in love. Literally the antithesis of what the world is trying to get us to become. He calls us to go to people in all humility. The idea that we would put the well-being of other people before ourselves. He says to approach people with gentleness that we would be bearers of God's grace in the way that he has been gracious with us. I can remember as a young boy, my mom, if I'd pick up something fragile, would be like, you need to be gentle, because I was such a rough dude, right? I always was looking to tear something apart and break it apart. You need to be gentle in our interactions with people, even when they've wronged us. Do we have the ability to be bearers of God's grace and gentle? So that we aren't seeking to tear apart, but that we're seeking to build them up. Are we people of patience who aren't quick to judge and condemn, but that we treat others with the patience with which Christ has treated us? Which the Bible says that Jesus and God have been so incredibly patient with us, waiting for us to come to our senses so that we could be in a relationship with them. All of this that we would learn to bear with one another in love, literally to carry the burden by loving other people unconditionally. All of this that we would maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A very drastically different picture than what the world offers us. And he continues, Paul does in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, and he says this, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. You know, when I think of the list of traits that Paul gives to us, that we are to be those who are humble, that are gentle, that are patient, that bear with others in love, no matter what the situation, I think to myself, that is not me. Like, man, when somebody hurts me, or hurts somebody close to me or brings pain into my life, my immediate, natural, sinful human response is to go after them. And not just to go after them, but to see how many people I can get on my side and take with me. That's, I think, the natural bent of all of us. And so when Paul says it, it seems impossible. It seems hard. How do I do this? But Paul gives us the answer in what we just read. This is not something that we can accomplish in our own strength. But what does he say? We are to grow up in every way into him, the one who holds it all together. In other words, when we are wounded, what is it that keeps us from responding in a way that is harsh or seeks to tear another person down or to impunge their character to another person? It is our connection to Christ and Christ alone who is the head of the body. That when we submit and surrender our own hearts to him, that he gives us the ability to, to, to respond in grace and love. But what is the big roadblock to this? It is this. It continues in Ephesians 4, a hardened heart. A hardened heart. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 quickly says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. For they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. What does Paul say when we hit this roadblock of a hardened heart? He says, do not walk as the Gentiles do. Don't walk as those who do not know God. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from God. Literally, their heart is hardened. Why? It says, because they are callous. Anybody here ever gotten a callous on your hand? When I started playing guitar when I was a young man, my youth pastor was teaching me how to do it. I picked that guitar up and I started playing. And, and about two, three minutes in, man, I thought my fingers were bleeding and falling off. Like literally. Literally, those strings cut into your fingers, leave permanent indentations. It was painful. I couldn't keep going. And while I looked at him, I'm like, how do you do this? He goes, just keep pushing through the pain. Just keep pushing through the pain. You'll build up a callus on the end of the finger, on the end of your fingers to the point that you will no longer feel the pain and you can just keep going as though it's not there. Think about Paul's words. How is it that we get to the place of a hardened heart where we don't sense God? And what he desires for us when we just continue to push through in the way of the world our heart becomes callous to the point that we don't even feel the pain of our sin and our own separation from God to the point that we can continue on ingrained in the way of the world no longer feeling the searing pain of our sin against God we can lie against people we can slander people we can spread salacious rumors we can gossip about people and destroy their whole person and yet not even feel a, feel a twinge of guilt and it ought not to be this way and so how do we fix that Paul says that our unity is preserved as we refuse to give the devil ground and actively choose to give the Holy Spirit freedom to transform us into the very image of Christ. 
I close with this passage of Paul. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Rather, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ has forgiven you. What does he say? Very simply, put away falsehood. Don't participate in it because you are Christ's body. You are a reflection of him to the world that surrounds us. He says, be angry, which is astonishing, right? Just a few verses earlier, don't murder. We see in the New Testament says that anger leads to that. But it says, be angry, a natural human emotion, but what? Don't give the devil a foothold. In other words, don't let your anger come to a place that is out of control where the devil can grab a foothold in your life. It is probably the biggest issue that we have in the Christian life is that we allow our anger to turn into a place that drives us to bitterness that then allows us to go and begin to impunge the character of other people. And Satan grabs a foothold and he takes more ground and more ground and more ground. And so what does he say here? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up that it may give grace to I heard a pastor say this over and over a number of years ago. He would tell his staff this very same thing. I don't ever want to hear you talk poorly about another person, but he would always say, don't forget Ephesians 4. Only speak words that speak life and love. And Paul gives us one last good piece here. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I want you to grab this with me this morning as we close. The Bible tells us that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we are given the Holy Spirit, that literally the very Holy Spirit of God comes and resides within us as followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, at the moment of salvation, you have 100% of the Holy Spirit living and residing within you, enabling you to have all of the power and everything that you need in order to live the Christian life. One of the great misnomers that we pray all the time in the church is, Lord, give me more of your Holy Spirit. Please send me a freshness of your Holy Spirit. Please give me something, almost as though we don't have what we need. It's a wrong theology. God has given you everything that you need in the Holy Spirit from the moment you gave him your life. It is at your disposal. When is it that we don't experience his power in our life? When we quench his work. When we stop surrendering. When we stop submitting. When we decide that we would rather live the way of the world and look more like the world than that of Christ. 
Literally, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is there and his power can save us from sin and that he can be the one that sets us on a righteous way. Being kind to one another, being tenderhearted, forgiving when it's hard in the same way that Christ has forgiven you. When we yield our hearts and our lives to the Lord, it is the Holy Spirit who does the changing work inside of us to make us the person that God has designed for us to be that will show his character and image to the world. Lord, I thank you. As we read this passage this morning, we look at it, it's very easy to walk away from it feeling guilty or feeling condemned. But Lord, as I look at the world that surrounds us, I see a world, God, and you know this, God, that there is a world that surrounds us that is literally in bondage to the sin of this commandment. We are surrounded day in and day out with examples that are showing us that it's okay for us to speak ill of other people, to gossip, to spread rumors, to literally tear down the very character and nature of people that have been made in your image. And Satan has grabbed such a foothold in our world that this world is such in bondage. We are surrounded by this chaos. But if we're honest, Lord, we so easily fall into the trap of allowing ourselves to be put into those chains. But Father, that is not how you designed for us to be. Lord, the desire that you have for each one of us is that we would be freed from that bondage, that we would be freed from the feeling or need to defend ourselves, to tear another person down, to impunge their character. And so, Father, even as we sit here this morning thinking about how this applies to us, my prayer is that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would enable us in the situations of our life to yield to you to allow your spirit to have control, to break us free from those chains, that our lives would be a pure reflection of who you are to this world, that we would be those who not only stand for truth, but we stand for love, that the world would come to know you. We love you, Lord. Amen.
today. If there are any prayer needs that you have, our prayer team is here. Paul and Diana Schwer uh, would love the opportunity to pray with you or to take you over to our prayer room today. So please come forward at the close of our service uh, if you have any needs. Just a reminder to you that uh, if you are interested in information about our Spring Serve, uh, about Grief Share, about the women's uh, conference that is coming up, all of that information can be found over in the W Cafe at the close of our service. Uh, most importantly, those we go from here today, remember that there is power in the name of Jesus to break every single chain. May you experience that freedom as you yield your heart and your life to him and the power of his spirit this week, that you would go out and that you would be a reflection of his love to this world that desperately needs it. God bless you. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We'll see you next week.